Well, thanks for stopping by. Today's show is about cyber insurance. We talk a fair bit about the changing industry and the impact on customers. We also give you a few tips and tricks when thinking about your coverage and your premiums. Welcome to Threat Actions This Week, the show where we look at the latest threats, tech, and actions your organization can take. Today's top security talent share their insights with you. I'm joined by three guests who each have their own unique perspective on cyber insurance. Starting off with Visesh Gasrani. He is the director of risk and actuarial at Science. He helps insurance companies model cyber risk for underwriting and risk management. He's in London, England today. Thanks for joining us, Visesh. Thank you, David, for having me. Greg Markell, he is the president of and the CEO of Ridge Canada Cyber Solutions. He's on the other side side of the pond in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you for having me. And returning guest, David Strom. He is hands-on with security. He's a journalist, author. You can find him at CSO Online, Inside Security, Strom.com, S-T-R-O-M.com. He's in the St. Louis, Missouri area today. Thanks for making the time, David. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Okay. So when I think about, you know, fire crime, road safety, they're all quite well understood by insurers, right? I, I, in fact, I'd argue that insurers probably understand um, those elements better than fire, police services, or EMS, because you know those on the ground have a bias from individual cases, whereas insurers have this much larger sample size to calculate the true frequency and the, the size of damage. So we'll come back to you know, the demand side and looking at customers and what customers want to think about with respect to their policies and what are some of the best practices that they should be considering. But Visesh, if we start off at, at a high level and think about the supply side and, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber insurance, do we have the history of data points and knowledge of interdependencies to put a dollar figure on cyber risk today? We don't have the history of incidents uh, that we would for, for lots of other types of insurance. We also don't have the stability within the history we have because the, both the, the threat and the defensive landscape have been changing at a much faster rate than you would see for many other types of risks. What we do have is the ability to look at a number of factors that can drive uh, insurance claims to understand the impact that they have and then relate them to the incidence data that we have to date. So for example, if you're thinking of targeted data breaches, you can look at companies and their performance from a historical perspective. Um, obviously, you need to have been collecting data on those companies historically to, to understand what the major factors are that have given rise to incidents and therefore understand by looking at a present day perspective of a company how it how it relates to the environment back then and how that relates to the environment today and also if they have reliances on say cloud service providers or particular pieces of software again you can look at the performance of those and extrapolate based on the performance that you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis what bad might look like. And that's what's really important for insurance because you're protecting against the bad. So I have to size the bad and the bad can come from so many different sources and it can take the form of downtime, it could take the form of exfiltrated sensitive data. When you start to 
talk to customers, Greg, and think about how you establish that baseline, what are some of the, the basics that you start off with when you're talking to customers? For us, we're always communicating through ins- retail insurance brokers. So messaging changes a little bit, but at the same time, there's still that education and awareness that needs to be going through because as everybody's mentioned, you know, this is still relatively new. The coverage is evolving. The actual legislation country by country, in Canada, province by province, we're lucky that we're, we're, we've got some federal legislation coming in, but that's, that's constantly changing. And so you need to stay on, on top of that. But when it comes to the end customer, what we like to do right out of the right out of the gate is is really, you know, baseline it and, and just find out, okay, based on industry sector vertical, how do you relate against your peers? But also, as Vitesh mentioned, some of the useful benchmarking tools, the types of security vendors and, and things that they're that they're using. But when we look at it, it's it's where is that probable maximum loss going to come from? And then sort of pairing that with coverage. Take ransomware, for example. Ransomware is basically ubiquitous now. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, what what industry vertical your organization operates in, you have the threat of ransomware. But if we look at something that's sort of pertinent to other organizations, like payment card industry compliance and, and payment card industry uh, DSS compliance, that might be... Uh, a little bit different. So how people are protecting credit cards, whether it's end-to-end encryption, whether people are using different vendors to actually help outsource some of the risk themselves, uh, compliance procedures along with it. Those types of things become important, but they may be more important to retail than they are to someone in healthcare, for example. So it's, it's all about looking at it on an industry-by-industry basis, trying to figure out with the customer, what are they worried about? And how can they protect it? Yeah, so you and Visesh both raised some really interesting points. And I want to come back to, you know, what are the things that customers can think about when setting, you know, premiums and what are the, some of the things that are going to drive it down and some of the things that are going to drive it up? Maybe we should take it back a step, uh, David, and think about the overall industry and, and the maturity of that industry. You and I are kind of outsiders to it. Visesh and Greg are right in the midst of it. We're, we've been watching it. And what's your thoughts around you know, how that industry has evolved? And, and where it's at today. So I come from a background, actually, my first IT job was working for uh, an insurer in, in LA. And uh, of course, back then in the 1980s, n- nobody knew from nothing about cybersecurity. We, you know, we had mainframes that walked the earth and that was, it was very well tended. I think part of the problem is there's a combination of it, people don't know what they need to insure against. They get a policy and they try to read it by their regular insurance uh, people, but their insurance people don't know anything about information security. And the insurers don't necessarily know what's the effect of insiders on the potential threats. I mean, a lot of ransomware is kicked off because somebody clicks on a phishing link. Well, you can't insure stupidity. Just, you know, people are just going to do it. But also, I think there's a a problem with reading the fine print. You know, when you see an ad for Liberty Mutual on TV and it says, we'll replace your car with with what a current car costs, offers not available, you know, in Minnesota or whatever states they have that don't allow that. So you see that on the screen for like a a second or two. Well, imagine the the cybersecurity uh, insurer, he's got thousands of those exceptions and fine print. Uh, declarations. 
And it gets very difficult to figure out what actually you're going to cover and how those policies interrelate with each other. Yeah, you raise a really good point, which is that despite the fact that cyber insurance has been around since sort of the turn of the millennium, some of the coverage wording is still developing. It's been adapted from other lines of business. Uh, people are still learning as the claims come in that they didn't want to ensure a particular type of event or allow particular behaviors. And it's making the coverage somewhat more complicated because it's like layering a plaster on top of a plaster on top of a plaster. And we're seeing the impacts of that in terms of providers giving different levels of coverage. So it's not like you can go to 10 different providers and have a very similar product where you just compare the price. You really do need to think hard about the coverage. And exactly as you said, David, there's not the skills within the organization to, to necessarily think through the coverage. Um, that's something that insurers are definitely trying to solve for. Um, it, it, it takes time to go through those processes. So in today's environment, I think the biggest thing about the insurance is actually thinking about those added services. You know, the value provided by having someone by your side to respond, because what organizations are starting to realize is that it's not an if, like your house being on fire is a, well, maybe in the next, you know, 30, 40 years, there's a small chance that my house might catch fire. It's actually much more likely for larger organizations that they will be, uh, that they will be breached at some point. And so it's a when rather than an if. And also most people do recognize that they naturally will believe that they're a better risk than they are. And, and so, because you don't necessarily see all your flaws. Uh, so, so insurance is, Despite the coverage issues, it's it's actually a valuable service if you've got the if that puts all the tools at your disposal for when you actually have a breach. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the things that we really looked long and hard at hard at before we actually built the policy language is who is going to be the boots on the ground to help the clients with these claim scenarios when something does happen. That was how we built our policy first and foremost, is recognizing that you want those experts when a friend of mine used to call it that hair on fire moment happened so that you had the support, your IT team had the support and everything else. I think for us in, in the insurance industry, one of the one of the biggest challenges is again, coming back to the first point that I made was the education and awareness at the retail broker level. How do we help support our retail partners who are opening these sales channels for clients to purchase these risk transfer mechanisms to actually empower them to be able to communicate exactly what's being covered and what's not as well? Because what's not is more important in terms of how these policies are being bought. But, you know, one of the biggest issues that we face right now is the fallacy that certain clients have that, you know, they're being sold an extension off of a property or a liability policy or traditional bricks and mortar insurance policies where insurers are tacking on an element, and I'm air quoting here, of cyber. And it's really just incredibly limited. And, and beyond that, there's not, in a lot of these cases, if something does happen, there isn't that vendor expertise to come in and actually deal with the situation anyway. So a lot of the times clients think that they're buying cyber, 
you know, brokers think that they're selling it and think that they're doing a favor, but you're getting such a small limit with nothing backing, nothing backing it up, which, you know, it, it can give the industry a, a bad rep or a bad image. So are we getting closer to a taxonomy of fault lines, if you will, where the industry, instead of having, you know, each of the different brokers, each of the different providers, having different types of riders and different kinds of claims, et cetera, that, that customers could potentially make, having some form of standardization? Do you see a time in the near future where we might get there? I mean, we've got a common framework to understand, so the, the NIST cybersecurity framework as an example, but in terms of the, the coverage that an organization is going to be buying, do we see that taxonomy or what have you of those fault lines evolving? I think the short answer is no. I think that's the problem. You know, we have... Now we have startups that are focusing exclusively on cyber insurance, like AtBay just raised a big funding round uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's their entire business. And I think you're going to have more, more vendors like that that just specialize in cyber and nothing else. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we're, we are one of those vendors as well. And I think an element of commoditization of the industry is inevitable. I think it's going to take a long time. From an insurance perspective, you can liken it a little bit to directors and officers liability. And if you go back 25, 30 years, you know, watching that industry evolved and, and that, that coverage evolved to now, nowadays, where you're looking at a nonprofit DNO policy that is almost the exact same company by company. It's just broadened out to include everything. It's almost a catch-all. Are we going to get to that level? I, I doubt it just because as everybody's been talking about, you know, the prevalence of claims is going to keep multiplying, you know, footprint of risk keeps expanding. How you control your risk is, is going to change. Is commoditization going to happen overnight? Absolutely not. But there are certain areas where I think it would certainly help because as you guys have identified, there's no real single common language out there. Every different carrier is calling certain items diff by different names. And, and that creates a lot of difficulty in the legal environment trying to process exactly what the intent of the policy is. I'd agree with Greg, and I'd probably add some more color there. I, I think a lot of the reason that the policies will converge and it will be over a much longer time frame is because there will be lessons learned and there, there will be become a better practice uh, in terms of dealing with these coverages. Um, but what, what will remain and always needs to remain is some level of differentiation depending on what you as an insurer stand for because otherwise the, the insurance market as a whole can't cater to all the different types of appetite and um, risk characteristics, uh, risk preferences of the different insureds out there. I completely agree. I think, David, to your point too, I think what we're going to see eventually you know, what we're seeing now, and you mentioned the, the recent round of funding, a lot of them are technology companies at their core and security companies at their core with insurance wrapped in. And, and so how do you integrate the two? And it's a great question. And, and I'm not sure where the market is going to go in terms of that. The way we look at it is we're not technology salespeople, but we know the insurance market. So how do we, how do we wrap everything so that we have clients that are comfortable with the products that they're buying and brokers that are confident in selling it to their clients? And at the same time, how do we control and manage the risk along the way? 
So you look at some of the different startups and, and it's very interesting to see some of the technology that they're pushing first and then wrapping it in with an insurance product, almost more like a warranty than it is an actual standalone cyber insurance coverage. I think what we're going to see is a delineation between the, the companies that are doing that and doing that for small businesses versus those that are writing and looking to underwrite in a more traditional cyber insurance sense to the larger mid-market companies that are buying standalone larger limits and trying to transfer that risk off of their balance sheet. I'm still looking for what I would call the Tesla of cyber insurance. You know, most people think Tesla is a car company. They're really a software company that just happens to make cars. But they're making cars like they like we make software. You know, they have upgrades every other day. You know, they're doing all sorts of agile development. They have features that you can turn on with the click of a, of a button or remotely. I think we need to have the same kind of thing happening in the cyber insurance world, where we have an insurance company which is built like a software company, like a security company. So I think that's going to be the most successful amalgam of the two approaches. My bet is on the traditional insurers. Because I've thought about whether, you know, the managed security service providers or other consultants or as as Greg, you're saying, some of the you know hardware software vendors themselves could become not just resellers, but potentially insurers. Yeah, I think the danger for that model is that uh, we're still learning about cyber insurance. There's still mistakes that we we will have been making with retrospect as writers. So if you suddenly add more knobs for somebody to turn as an insured, it's going to make it harder to understand, to actually understand the risk that you're running as a portfolio. Uh, I mean, we've still got a number of writers out there who don't necessarily look at all the digital fault lines. Uh, so the accumulations by sort of the cloud service providers, the accumulations by the, the software that, you know, people are exposed to uh, and other factors as well. Um, if that portfolio can keep changing on and off, then for your regulatory requirements, that's going to push them potentially up a notch because of the uncertainty within your portfolio. That may be too much for a startup to handle because because capital is not cheap. Right, you may be right. But then I'll give you the example that I'd like to introduce here, which was covered by Brian Krebs in his column in July, talking about a bank in Virginia that had two cyber thefts. They had the same consultant come in to try to help them clean it up. They had you know, two different riders on their insurance policy. And of course, the insurer denied the more beneficial claim that would have you know, protected them and given them less of, an, of, a, of a financial exposure. So I think one of the, the real side benefits of cyber insurance are the the lawyers who are now litigating these claims, they're going to be the real winners, like in so many cases, because there's so many litigations that are happening as a result of breaches and insurance. Yeah, and again, this is, this is coming back to what I said earlier. I mean, I don't, so I don't know the specifics of this case, so I'm going to talk more generally about this type of incident, but the coverage wordings are evolving and cyber is probably not the only insurance where, well, in fact, it isn't the only insurance where disagreements arise about the interpretation of clauses. And the hard thing which you raised earlier is you need to assess what you require. And if you're large, not only do you need to involve those IT experts and the risk managers, you also need to involve general counsel in assessing what the policy actually, whether the policy does what you think it does. Um, my advice generally is on something like this, you know, having a 
having a brand that you actually trust or have a relationship with and therefore might be more forgiving uh, is probably a safer route to take than one that has a reputation of, of sort of very much holding you to the letter of the line. And in the UK, we, we do have brands that that stand for, okay, well, we'll always give you the benefit of the doubt versus others that are very much more to the nose, but are, are much better on price. So I want to come back to that point in just a minute uh, um, around customers and their comfort level and, and how, how do we get them to the comfort level where they say, okay, I understand the variables. I understand how my premium is, be, premium is being set. And I can get some predictability in terms of the flip side that if something bad happens, that I'm, I'm going to get paid out. And so if I'm a customer, and I know we're kind of coming back to some of the things, Greg, that you were talking about and Vasesh as well. I'm a customer and I'm trying to determine what my rates might look like. Just generally speaking, I, I assume it's based on things like you were mentioning, things like the industry, the amount of PII I might have, you know, my brand familiarity, size of my attack surface. You know, There's a range of different things that it starts to be based on. And then there's things that I could do potentially to reduce that premium, things like you know demonstrating that I did threat risk assessments or that kind of thing. Is that fair to say? Or is or there are other benchmarks, metrics that you're using in order to be able to first determine what my premium is as a customer? So, David, yes, everything that you mentioned is factored in and it's driven in. That sort of contributes to the level of maturity. I mean, the way that we tend, we tend to look at things um, from the underwriting perspective is where do organizations look in terms of their enterprise risk management model. So for the first step is, has the organization assessed what it has? Does the organization know what its crown jewels are? Then, you know, you move forward. So what is the information that they're holding? How are they storing it? What are they doing with it? Where is it going? You know, is, is it, and is, where is it? That's, that's step one. Step two is trying to control it. So do you have vendors protecting in the form of managed service partners? How are you layering your security? All those types of things. And then finally, you look at the transfer mechanism, and, and that's really where, where we're coming in. But from the sense of evaluating that transfer mechanism, all of the things that you mentioned factor in. So even one that you didn't is the overall size of the organization, so revenues. Revenues and number of employees are also key drivers in this um, because if you look at it, and as we've mentioned throughout the, the, you know, the potential for insider threat, you know, ransomware being a big issue between you know, keyboard and back and chair and people clicking on things that they shouldn't be clicking on. That leads into is the organization spending a little bit of money on bringing in some educational materials for their employees? Is it just at management level? So evaluating where that where the organization is at in smaller organizations, obviously a much shorter process but still the same sort of material impact could happen, right? So it becomes important in looking at what types of risks as an organization are you really trying to target? Yeah, I'd, I'd very much agree with Greg. I think one of the things that I'd add that, that is important to consider is um, who their service providers are and their IT service providers and what they use them for and any redundancies that they've got in place. Um, that, that's important both because it'll give you a, an idea of the service providers. Well, you can have an idea of the service provider's performance uh, and so the likelihood that you might have to pay out on any contingent business interruption loss. Um, and also so that you as an insurer can manage your overall exposure because if you write a whole load of policies 
that look very, very different, but all have exposure to the same service provider and you don't know it, that's a big problem for an insurer. A bit like you wouldn't write uh, tons and tons of you, you wouldn't be an all US insurer and write tons and tons of properties in one area of Florida. Okay, so I'm using Google Cloud Platform or I'm using Microsoft Azure or what have you. So basically what you're saying is that in those environments, I may pay a lower rate than someone who's got their on-prem IT. Is, is that fair to say? And then what other variables would I consider? Because if I'm in, say, GCP or I'm in Azure, I can do some pretty dumb things that can expose my database to the public internet. And, you know, you as an insurer probably wouldn't know necessarily that that's the case. I guess maybe you're talking more about the SaaS end of things. So if you're using Salesforce.com or if you're using Office 365 or what have you, then I'm going to be paying a little bit less. All of those things that you just mentioned, David, have had major breaches over the last couple <laughs> of years. You know, Salesforce just had one last week and they still haven't figured out the extent of the, the issue. And that was because their API was was uh, compromised by a, a third-party vendor. So it wasn't even really technically their fault, but it, it affected their customers. So how does an insurer rock that whole situation? It's very complicated. I don't think you can make generalizations that cloud is necessarily yeah. better than on-prem. No, and, and, and we don't. But what we would look at is what's the sophistication of the contractual language between vendor and client? So have you looked at your indemnification provisions within your contractual language to, to do that who's on first if something were to happen? A lot of the language is just stock legalese that hasn't been looked at, hasn't been touched, and hasn't been modified to suit the real risks that are ongoing and evolving every day. So that's definitely something that we look at because at the end of the day, if you're even if you're looking at trying to underwrite a mid mid market client they could have thousands you know hundreds of vendors which means hundreds of contracts so how do you assess those vendors i know organizations are struggling with this their lawyers are struggling with this and so if, if we're looking at how do we standardize and how, how do we look at that, I think there's some there's an evolution of legal language that needs to happen. But in the interim right now, we look at those scenarios. Are there hold harmless provisions in those contracts at the vendor levels that the vendor can just basically push everything back down to client? If so, you know, maybe we should reevaluate this. Maybe we should look at things. If we're going to be responsible for a vulnerability that sits at the vendor level, you know, it, it's something that you you need to look at because as, as the session mentioned, that contingent business interruption component is a scary one out there for all insurers. And so from an aggregation standpoint, it's something that is being, is trying to be tracked, but it's a very, very difficult task to track all of this. But it's something that we endeavor to do as we report in, um, you know, one of the components that, that we report in on every single risk are the high-level vendors who does some of this stuff. And we collect that data afterwards and share it. And, and that goes right back into the Lloyds of London marketplace. So it's something that is being tracked. It's being looked at. I, I can assure you it's being validated and quantified, but it's something that is going to continue to evolve over time. And, and right now, is there a difference between in-house versus outsourcing? No. You know, both are rated as long as the proper steps are being taken and you, and you can see via the self-assessment questionnaires and the applications that 
clients are taking those precautions, if they're thinking about it, then, you know, is, are we going to add a loading factor to someone for using one CRM over another? No, we, we won't do that. We're vendor agnostic as long as they're thinking about it. And also, David, you know, to, to continue from that, uh, in relation to your point that somebody could go and set it all up wrong and therefore they could expose uh, their data externally. Um, yes, that, that is a risk, but you know, as Greg was saying, that's something that you can assess. I mean, so, so sort of not to sell science, but the whole point of science is to give you a significant amount of information across a very, very large number of companies, well, any company that you're thinking of insuring, um, such that you can understand what their processes internally are like. And that's from running tests in terms of their security setup, right through to looking at what their overall employee engagement is like, and other factors that lead you to understand the, the likelihood of process errors internally or malicious actions internally. And, and then also to aggregate that up in terms of a overall portfolio view to understand where your concentrations of risk are. So suddenly you now know that um, you've, you've got companies on your books which are overall better in an objective sense uh, and also your your exposure to specific accumulation paths is not is not very high so by number or by poor performing accumulation paths and sorry david one thing that i forgot from your original question in terms of what are we looking at just another another item to add in there is that we look to add into the underwriting criteria is is there a plan in place you know, what we're trying to do up front, too, is quantify what type of resilience or, or how does resilience factor into the governance model of these organizations? So, you know, are, there, are they planning? Have they looked at non-tangible loss and integrated that into a business continuity or disaster recovery plan? So we, we ask those types of questions as well. And then from there, you can really, because I, I think when it comes down to it, if, if you're a sophisticated organization that's looking at purchasing the cyber insurance to transfer that risk off of your balance sheet, off of your portfolio, then you may already have vendor relationships in place and, and retainers paid to actually handle some of the losses coming in. So the insurance companies are then able to, should be able to come in and actually help and plan and, and make sure that everything is, is taken care of. And, and that, that is still evolving. When we entered the market in 2016, it was a big push for us was helping with that process because there's got to be familiarity with the organizations to the extent that you conflict checked as well and made sure that there's not, there's no conflict between who's going to be doing, who's going to be remediating the damage. Um, I think that that's important as well, but and again, that's art and science. Lots of good points there. And so I'm curious, Visesh, you've got an interesting perspective on things with the data that you've, you know, in, in your company collects. Are there any myths that that, um, that exist in the industry that you look at and say, well, wait a minute, that's not what our data bears out, um, that risk actually is more over here than it is over here? Or maybe a simpler way or more straightforward way to ask the question is, where do you find those biggest areas of risk are from, from the data that you collect? There's a lot of writers out there that um, do their price, they'll do their underwriting submission and they'll look at a lot of data that comes in on that submission from the companies. And the problem is, is that the people filling out the submissions are talking about areas of their company and they're attesting to things that they think are the case. And 
they may not necessarily know, like if they're saying that they follow a particular process, then they may not know that that process isn't really followed. For, so for example, just one case that we actually investigated, there were vulnerabilities on a network and they were arising because a subsidiary hadn't turned off a bank of servers that it was that it had been requested to, but had confirmed that they actually had. And so the you know this company no longer was patching this part of its network. It didn't know it existed because there weren't the relevant controls in place, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the biggest myth is that you can just rely on the underwriting submission alone and not do anything else. And that's just because you've got one real point of, of contact who isn't necessarily used to dealing with insurance and may not even want the insurance because it takes the money away from their budget. Makes sense. And um, David, from your perspective, do you see ways that customers can start to think about this and, and net it out and who they might want to contact? Well, I think a lot of the conversation has been very relevant where you, if you don't have a very good risk awareness or risk analysis in your company, you're not going to have very good cyber insurance because you have to be able to quantify those things before you know what you can insure against. So there are there are a lot of companies that have never thought about insider risk, for example. And you know when they get a ransomware attack or when they get somebody that exfiltrates data, it comes as a complete surprise. To them. So they're not, no matter what the insurance industry does, those companies are never going to be insured properly because they just don't understand what the environment that they're doing business in. So I think we have to solve that problem before we can get to the insurance issue. Uh, and to the extent that the gentlemen on this podcast are trying to you know, work mightily in this field, you know, I, I salute them and I hope that we have more people that enter into that arena. I think managed service providers is certainly a, a natural place to see more of that, particularly for small businesses, because the larger business is going to have their own insurers and collection of people that really are operating in that area. A lot of small businesses have never even thought about yeah, I'd agree with you. In fact, when we look back at, at fire safety and we look at a time when cities were burning down, you know, Toronto in 1904 saw a big part of the downtown get gutted around the same time as Chicago. London's major fires were a little bit before that. But it was really insurance that helped to drive change I mean, in, in what organizations were doing and affected government policy and that kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see in our world where very few threat risk assessments are, are really done and done across all the attack surfaces that they should be uh, done, particularly as you get into the mid-market or into the smaller businesses who traditionally underspend on security and yet are still absolutely targets for cyber criminals. So when we look at what a customer should do next, Visesh. And there's, you know, one or two areas that you might say, okay, as David's saying, get that threat risk assessment, have that quantified by maybe a firm that the insurer might recognize. Are there other things from, from the data that you've seen that organizations should start, start to do as they think about moving forward? Yeah, I actually think that there is a, there is a set of organizations that are still of the mindset that they don't need to worry too much about cybersecurity. And they... Um, their risk is going to become amplified because it's a bit like a bear chasing you. The, the bear is going to get one of the laggards. And so as that, as that pool of laggards starts to reduce, 
Um, anyone who is just looking for a target uh, is going to go for those those easier targets rather than the ones who've actually stayed ahead of the curve. Um, look, you, you can stay ahead of the curve and still have something very specific that somebody wants and, and therefore will target you specifically. But for the vast majority of cyber criminal actors out there, it's more about easy pickings. And so organizations need to realize that they they take they have to take cybersecurity very seriously and that cyber insurance doesn't solve that that complements that great points and you know greg how can i lower my premiums so so i come <laughs> to you what do i do what do i do greg all the security stuff let's get to the dollars <laughs> yeah keep pressing on everything that that david has just mentioned i mean that's exactly it and i love the I love the bear analogy. I, actually, my brother used it this, this past weekend. He's like, I just have to be faster than the person than the person behind me. Because that's the fact. I mean, it's, you know, recognizing that there is no silver bullet. You want insurance to be there in the event that you are hit on something that you might not have been able to predict and you might not have been able to look internally, say, hey, here's how we protected against this and something happened anyway, right? So I think there's a lot of, awareness and education that still needs to happen. I mean, I look at the Canadian market and there's a lot that needs to happen, but there's some good things happening. And that's, it's not all doom and gloom. There are government working groups that are focusing specifically on how we can help small businesses because small businesses make up the vast majority. It's it's over 90% of our Canadian economy is driven via small business. So how do we really work with those organizations and, and do those types of things and can't, you know, the insurance and the great fires insurance auto insurance and seat belts and and you know those types of things you know how do we help in terms of advocacy and and in terms of setting the right example to really to really drive things forward i think there's still a lot of work to do i think it's work that you know frankly i'm i love doing so it's great and having conversations with brokers and clients alike to really figure out one what are they worried about but two and trying to let them know maybe you should be focusing on here and here and here as well. And there are, I, I can tell you, I have the conversation a lot with brokers. Maybe the client isn't ready to buy this type of insurance yet. You know, the, the, maybe they're better. Like there are a is better suited on spending money here as opposed to trying to transfer it off and creating some uh, a potentially unsustainable insurance or risk transfer program going forward so that the insurance market is always one to be able to take rate when they can get it, but you don't necessarily see it being given back all that often. Right. So go through the measures that we've been talking about. Clients should be looking at those assessments, figuring out what they have, how they want to control it, controlling it, and then looking at insurance because insurance isn't the solution. As Vishesh mentioned, it's just part of an overall risk management strategy. Here's also another risk management tip is that uh, when Visesh talks about bears, there aren't any in the UK. When someone says that where you are, you might want to start running next time, Greg. But anyway, just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Mr. Strom, David Strom, any final words from you and uh, how can people reach you? I think this has been a very fascinating discussion. I think the more, the more that we can talk about this, the better it's when we understand each other. We're coming from several different perspectives and we have to find a common language to communicate. And I think uh, the more that we can work on that, the better. 
Uh, you can reach me through strom.com, my website. Email is david at strom.com. Twitter is dstrom. And Greg Markell, how can people reach you and anything you've got coming up, any conferences you're going to be speaking at, any publications you're going to be pushing out there, any articles or what have you? Yeah, we're actually hosting an event in Toronto on September 5th, all about addressing the talent gap that is going to be existing. Uh, We've partnered with a wonderful organization here in Canada called the Canadian Advanced Technologies Association, and that will be featuring our namesake, Governor Ridge. So more details to come on that, but that's September 5th. If anybody is interested in that, they can private message me on LinkedIn, Greg Martell at uh, Ridge Canada Ridge Canada Cyber Solutions, or my email is G-M-A-R-K-E-L-L at RidgeCanada.com. Well, thank you. And Vasesh Gasrani, how can people reach you? Easiest is probably through my Twitter handle, V15ESH, or alternatively through LinkedIn. Um, I'm I'm on LinkedIn as V Gosrani, G-O-S-R-A-N-I. In terms of uh, events coming up, um, we're actually running two roundtables at the Monte Carlo Reinsurance Rendezvous, uh, which is running from September the 9th to Wednesday the 12th. And we... uh, the two roundtables are one is for those thinking of starting to write cyber in terms of the issues they might face and how to build a better portfolio. And the second is for those already writing cyber to discuss more market related issues uh, and also how to build a better portfolio, but based on what you're already writing. And there you have it. Threat Actions This Week, recorded August the 7th, 2018. I'm David Senf. See you again next week. You're absolutely right. We could talk forever about this. And that's why it's so exciting. I mean, I did make a bold prediction, which was, you know, at the moment we think about the insurance market as property and casualty. And going forward, I very much see it being PCNC, property, casualty and cyber, because it doesn't fit nicely within either of them and it crosses all of them. So you actually need specialists going forward and, and there is a lack of them.